you so much, choir. We had melodies and counter melodies and harmonies and all kinds of fun things happening in that one. I like that. If you would do me the honor of turning in your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 3, uh, I will promise you wholeheartedly that I realized this week when we were leading up to Sunday, I did not plan this sermon to take place the Sunday before Valentine's Day. It just kind of happened that way. Um, so we're, we're going we're, we're to have a little bit uh, better uh, love story than uh, uh, just about any other one you're, you're going to find in the third chapter of, of Ruth today. If you were with us this morning in Sunday school, uh, you saw um, the, the, the wrong, wrong kind of lady going after the wrong kind of man in all the wrong kinds of ways. Her name was Delilah. Uh, this is the reason, ladies, why none of you will probably ever have the urge to name your daughter Delilah. Um, right on up there with uh, Jezebel. Um, so, and now watch, I guarantee you someone in here has named their daughter Delilah, and I will have an, excla- an explanation after church today. I'm sorry, I did not mean any insult. Uh, but uh, that being the case, uh, we are going to see in the third chapter of Ruth today... Um, that uh, we're going to see a godly woman uh, pursue a godly man, not for the sake of pursuing the godly man, but for the sake of pursuing the covenant of her God. So if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we will start with the third chapter um, of Ruth, uh, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her 
And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me and said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will not or how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Father, I pray that you would give me the wisdom to teach exactly what it is your word says um, with boldness and clarity and that I would point to Jesus, our great Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. You can sit down. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had this to say about George Whitfield. Um, he said, People used to say of George Whitfield, who commonly finished up his discourse by crying, Come to Jesus, with his hands uplifted and his eyes streaming with tears, that when he was hard up for an idea, he always cried, O sinners, come to Jesus. So in other words, Spurgeon's saying when, when Whitfield had run out of things to say, he would just start screaming, come to Jesus. Spurgeon said, God be praised if all preachers would imitate him in that respect when they are hard up for an idea. For I know of no idea that could possibly equal in value an earnest, simple, loving gospel invitation. How that man of God would stand up on Kennington Common or Moorfields and cry in trumpet tones, Come, O oh come, why will you not come? Come now to Jesus. The best of it is that his cries were not in vain. That people did come. They came by hundreds and thousands to him who said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. This story is an Old Testament story, but it is part of the Bible. And your pastor wholeheartedly believes that this is not a book of a bunch of separate stories. This is a book of one story that just happens to be split into several episodes. This is one continuous story, and every single story in this book points to the reality of the story of Jesus, the great Redeemer who came to save us. And we're going to see a miniature version of that in Boaz today. And what I want you to take away from this is in the same way that Ruth risked literally everything by going to Boaz like this, that Boaz received her and rewarded her for her faith in coming to him the way she did. Jesus does that with us. This is, that, that, that's the whole point of this whole chapter. That is why this chapter is in your Bible. Is that a bold statement? Yes, it is. But it's right because the Bible's about Jesus, and I will stand on that until the day I die. So that's the point of this passage. So I want us to dig into this and, and, and look and see how this passage points forward to Jesus. Start in verse 1. I want us to see that Christ our Redeemer requires us to come to him in faith. I'm going to take two seconds to do a quick scan of the congregation. Okay. Do I have your leave as a congregation to preach this Bible for what's in it? Okay. Good. Uh, this is not a children's story in this chapter. And you will understand what I mean shortly. Starting in verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, uh, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? What, what, what is she talking about? That it may be well with you. Um, you will remember that earlier on in this book, I did not put some of this on your handout because we've covered this preaching through it, but I'll go back just to reference it, that when Naomi's leaving Moab, you'll remember Naomi's husband has died, both her sons have died, um, her sons dying deprived both Ruth and her sister Orpah of their husbands. That Naomi is now a widow, Ruth and Orpah are now widows, but Ruth and Orpah are both still of a marriageable uh, age. 
they could have turned around and gone back to Moab, gone back to their parents' house, and essentially started over um, as though nothing had happened. They're, they could have still lived a quote-unquote normal life. And Ruth uh, and Naomi warned them, if you come back to Israel with me, you are most likely sentencing yourself to a life of widowhood. To a life where you're probably not going to be married, you're probably not going to have children, and we're going to pretty much be destitute unless God finds a way to provide for us. Um, well, Naomi is coming back to that now at the end of the barley harvest. Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's field. She has been, uh, wh what would the phrase be, blessed and highly favored by Boaz. Um, that she is bringing home 50 and 60 pounds of, of barley worth of grain when she goes out, which is way more than most gleaners would bring home. Um, she, she, they're doing all right for a couple of, of destitute widows in Israel. They're doing okay. But Naomi turns back around to Ruth and she says, Should I not seek security for you? Should I not try and find a way for you to be redeemed? I want you, Ruth, to have a married life. I want you to have what you lost when your husband died. And it is my job as your mother-in-law, as your guardian. In this culture, Naomi was right. I've got to find somebody for you. And as luck would just have it, I seem to have just the guy in mind. That's kind of what Naomi is saying. Verse 2, now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Now in our culture, saying you need to marry this person, we're related to him, doesn't usually go over well. Um, that's, that's not really what's going on here. Boaz is a distant relative, um, and he would have fulfilled an older portion of the Israelite law from Deuteronomy 25 that uh, I'll, I'll reference again later, but the upshot of the law is if your husband dies and you do not have any children, then your family is running the risk of their family line being cut off. They won't have any inheritance amongst God's people. So God put a provision in the law that says if your husband dies and you are childless and he has no heir, that husband's brother can take you under his wing, can take you in as his wife, and the two of you can produce an heir for your family. Well, Ruth's brother is, Ruth's husband is dead. Ruth's husband's brother is dead. And Naomi says, hey, this Boaz, he is a close enough relative, he can fulfill this law for you, Ruth. I want you to do some stuff here. She says, in fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Um, what did the threshing floor entail? Well, first, what is winnowing? Um, winnowing was the process. Boaz was a farmer. He would grow barley, and this, this would work the same with barley. It would work the same with wheat, that when you would bring them in, when you would go out and you would reap your crop, then you would have the, the grain in what's called the chaff. And there's probably a farmer out there who's going to be like, this preacher's butchering it, but that's okay. You can correct me later. This is close enough. Uh, the, the, the chaff, you've got to get that off the grain. The chaff is worthless. The grain actually has substance. It has weight. 
The chaff, on the other hand, um, if you've ever dropped paper on a windy day and you find yourself running across the parking lot trying to hold it down with your foot so you can pick it up, chaff is like that times a thousand. It has no weight. It has no substance or heft whatsoever. So they would go out to these wide, flat areas called threshing floors. And they would beat the grain to separate the wheat or the barley from the chaff, and then they would toss it up in the air while a breeze was blowing. And when the breeze was blowing, the chaff was light enough that the wind would blow it away and the grain would fall down. So you would do this all day. It would have been pretty laborious. And then you would have this pile of grain. And Boaz has got a lot of grain. You remember we, we said, you know, Boaz is loaded. The man's rich. He's got a lot of grain. So he's going to be out there all day. And Naomi says, hey, Ruth. Boaz is out there. He, he's, he's putting in a long, hard day on the threshing floor today. Um, he's probably going to be out there tonight after he's done. Because what else would go on on the threshing floor is usually, especially at the end of harvest, which is where we find ourselves here, this was the, this was the big pull. This, this was bringing it in at the end of the harvest. People are celebrating. Um, there would have been multiple people out at the threshing floor at the same time. They're basically feasting. Uh, eating, drinking, and then at the end of the night, they would go sleep by their grain to guard it so that no one would steal it. Um, also important for the rest of the story, and one of the reasons that I said this is not a children's story, um, is other uh, uh, lady <coughs> entrepreneurs um, would make their way to the threshing floor at night um, to meet with some of the men who had put in a long, hard day's work. Um, that they would make their way out there on a regular basis and apparently uh, did a booming business at the threshing floor. Um, so it is important for you to understand that this went on with some regularity at the threshing floor. Um, so Naomi says, Boaz is going to be out here. So Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a four-step plan to get hitched. Here's how this is going to happen. First thing you need to do is you need to take a bath. That's always a good first step when you're going to introduce yourself to someone. Go take a bath. Um, you need to go do that. Wash yourself and anoint yourself. Um, this will go part of it. Uh, there, there wasn't, you know, you didn't, put on your, you didn't put on your secret or your old spice back then. Uh, there wasn't really deodorant. Uh, body odor was a thing. Uh, so you would, you would anoint yourself some sort of perfumed oil or something to make yourself smell good after taking a bath. So she says, take a bath and put on, put on your ancient Israelite deodorant. And, and, then, and then she says, put on your best garment. Does anybody's translation say best garment other than mine? Okay. Um, does anyone have it where their best is in italics? The reason best is in italics is because in the original Hebrew, that word is not there. Um, it is inserted to try and help us understand what's going on there. The problem with this is that there is no reason to assume Naomi is saying, put on any wedding clothes. She's not saying, put on wedding clothes. She's not saying, put on anything overly seductive. There's a reason I said that. Just put on regular clothes clothes. Put on your clothes. Um, there are some commentaries uh, that, that argue, yes, yeah, she's putting on some sort of special bridal or pre-bridal clothing. Um, some, most come down against that. 
I'm coming down against that, and I'll give you a good reason why. Fellas, how many of you would consider it a good, consider it a good first date if the lady showed up in a wedding dress? Run, sir. <laughs> That's not the way this works. Naomi is not telling Ruth to show up in a wedding dress. She's saying, just put your clothes on. Uh, in the ESV, it's just cloak. So why is Naomi telling Ruth to put this item of clothing on? It's not like Ruth wasn't wearing clothes to begin with, but Naomi's giving her special instructions. You need to put your cloak on. You need to put your garments on. What is this? This is a quote from Daniel Block. He wrote the New American Commentary on Ruth, and I found it very helpful. On the analogy of 2 Samuel 12, 20, it appears that Naomi is advising Ruth to end her period of mourning over her widowhood and get on with normal life. According to the text in Samuel, when David had been informed of the death of his son, he washed himself, anointed himself, put on his garment, and then went to the temple to worship after which he came back home and ate and drank. To David's puzzled contemporaries, this signaled the end of his period of mourning for his son. You will notice that that order of actions that David took is exactly the order of actions that Naomi told Ruth to take. It is very possible that the entire time Ruth has been out gleaning in Boaz's field, she is wearing the mourning garments of widowhood. She is telegraphing to everyone I am in mourning over my deceased husband. I am not a candidate for relationships, for marriage, for anything close to that. I am trying to provide for my family, but I am in mourning over my dead husband. And Naomi says, honey, it's time to move on. You have got to take off your garments of widowhood, take a bath, anoint yourself, and you've got to put on regular clothes. So she tells Ruth, put your garment on. Step three, lurk. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Wait until he's done with dinner. Fellas, if you've ever put in a hard day's work, and then you come back, and you eat, and you sit down in your recliner, and next thing you know, you wake up a few hours later because you were just so sleepy. You were, wait until this happens. Wait until he's done eating, until he's done drinking. He goes and lays down by his grain, and he takes a nap. I want you to find where that is, notice where that is, and then go do this. Verse 4, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. This chapter, to be totally and completely honest with you, has a lot of overtones that Naomi is telling Ruth, you need to telegraph to Boaz in every possible way, you are eligible for marriage. You need to make sure he is not confused at the end of the night that you are not available. In fact, uncovering Boaz's feet and laying down at them would have actually been very, very provocative. In fact, ladies, this is not what you ever want to instruct your daughters to do, especially in this culture. In fact, if Ruth had been one of those <coughs> entrepreneurs 
This might have been something that one of them would have done. They just wouldn't have stopped. Naomi says, you just need to uncover his feet and then wait. This is scary. Ruth is a Moabite. She is from a culture that is known for their sinfulness in this area. She has spent her entire time in Israel attempting to build a reputation of covenant faithfulness for her and for her mother. She has been protected in this field. She has been provided for. And Naomi is now take, telling her, you are going to take some very risky actions by going to Boaz this boldly. You are basically removing everything that, it, that, that, that is kind of a guard for you. You no longer have your mourning garments of widowhood. You're going to a place where seedy things happen. You're going to a place where you don't have the protection of Boaz's fields anymore. There are not people watching after you. And even though nothing's going to happen, you've got the me, 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 me. You know, people do this. That's why she said, Lurp, don't let anybody know you're there. People are going to talk. Naomi is putting uh, Ruth at a very, very big risk by telling her to do this. How does Ruth respond? Verse 5, she said to her, everything you say to me, I'll do. Okay. If this is the way we're going to do it, this is the way we're going to do it. Naomi, I'll do exactly what you tell me to do. Ruth puts aside her garments of mourning, puts everything on that Naomi told her to do, and then sets out to the threshing floor. Long story short, she goes down there, verse 6. She goes down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. This is the point of no return. There's no going back. Naomi tells her, and see if this sounds familiar to you at all. This is Naomi's conversation with her. Ruth, there is a redeemer who is qualified to bring you out of your current state of affairs. If you go to him completely helpless, and let him know that you are counting on him to save you, there might be a way out of the position you're in. Christian, does this sound familiar? That there is a redeemer who is qualified to bring you out of your current state of affairs. And if you will, in total and complete helplessness, you've got nothing to protect you, you've got nothing to hide, you go to him and you say, Jesus, I am counting on you to bring me out of my sinful state of affairs that I can do nothing about, he can save you. This is the same situation. This is not multiple stories. This is one story told over and over and over and over and over. And you're just seeing it with Ruth and Boaz this time. Naomi told Ruth, you've got to lay aside everything you're using to try and protect yourself and hold yourself. You've got to risk everything, honey. He's the only one, at least at this point, they think, He's the only one that can, do, that can do this for you. You got to go make sure he knows that this option is on the table. Now, Ruth had options at this point, and this is important to consider. Ruth had options. She could have said, you know what, Naomi? I kind of like my current life. 
I heard a youth say on Wednesday, I'm single as a Pringle. Ruth could have said, you know what, Naomi? I'm single as a Pringle. I don't have to go after, I, I don't. Ruth could have said, Naomi, look out there at that threshing floor. Do any of those women look like they're struggling to find food to eat? I guarantee you I could get us some food. You don't worry about this, Naomi. I don't need your plan. I like my life the way it is. Ruth could have done that. She could have said, no, I don't, I don't need your help. I'm doing just fine the way I am. I got everything I need to take care of myself. I don't need your help. She could have said, are you kidding me? There's no way Boaz is going to go for this. He knows I'm a Moabite. He knows we're poor. He's rich. There's no way he's going to respond to this. Naomi, this idea is stupid. There's no way he'd want anything to do with me. She could have said that. Instead, what she does is she doesn't deny her situation. She doesn't deny the liabilities. She doesn't deny the risk. She says, he's qualified. He is a member of the covenant. I'm a member of the covenant as a member of this family. And the law provides for him to redeem me. I'm going to go for it. Person sitting under the sound of my voice today, you got the same three options when you're presented with the gospel. Jesus has everything it takes to save you. He's qualified, he's willing, and he's able. But you got to go to him. You can say, you know what, I kind of like my life the way it is. I'm good at making it on my own. I've got all the resources I need to get by. I'm a decent person. I put food on my family's table. I don't, what do I need this for? This is just a bunch of extra complications. I do fine on my own. I don't need that. I like my life the way it is. And you could stay. You could say, well, there's no way in the world Jesus would want anything to do with me. You don't know what kind of life I've lived. You don't know where I'm from. You don't know what I've done. There's no way God would want anything to do with me. Oh, yes, he does. Or you could pull a Ruth. You could say, you know what? Everything that I'm worried about is true. I am a sinner. I do. I, am I clothe myself in liabilities when I wake up in the morning. There is no way that God looks down at me and he sees a perfectly righteous person apart from Jesus Christ. He's, he, he knows I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But I'm going to go to him anyway because he's good. And he's qualified. And he can save me. That's what Ruth did. That's what you can do. That Christ our Redeemer requires that we go to him in faith. Don't, don't give me this mess about I'm going to come to Jesus when I get my life straightened out. That makes about as much sense as saying I'll wait till I'm better to go to the hospital. You ever heard anybody say that when they get to the hospital, Miss Barb? That I'm so glad I waited until I got better to come see y'all. No, that's not the way it works. Don't try and straighten your life out before you go to Jesus. You can't do that. That's not the plan. Jesus knows your life is messed up. That's why you go to him. <laughs> Jesus is in the habit of accepting people who, who aren't qualified, which includes all of us. Christ, our Redeemer, requires that we go to him in faith. Second, and then you need to see this. Uh, look, at, look at what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
If you've been tempted by it, Jesus has been tempted by it. Yes, even that. I don't know what you're thinking, but the answer is yes, even that. He just did it without sin. So do you know Jesus understands how tough your life is when you come to him? He understands what you're dealing with. And yet he did it without sin. Therefore, here's what the author says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't shy away from Jesus. Be bold. Have bold faith. Walk straight up to the cross and say, I am not qualified to enter heaven, but Jesus, you are, and I'm dependent on you. Do you know how honoring that is to God? He's not offended by that. That's not brazen. That's the way he designed it to work. He knows you're not qualified, but Jesus is, praise God. Go to him boldly. Go to him in faith. So Christ our Redeemer requires us to come to him in faith. Second, Christ our Redeemer receives us when we come to him in faith. And this is what Ruth is waiting on with bated breath. How is Boaz going to respond? Verse 8. Well, actually, verse 7. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Verse 8. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, probably in a very panicked, high-pitched voice, Who are you? In Boaz's mind, ruh -roh. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> this is not supposed to be happening. You remember, Boaz, the entirety of this book has presented Ruth as the paragon of a righteous woman. Okay? It is not, that's why what I'm telling you, some of this stuff looks scary, especially when you talk about where she's going and the other things that can happen on the threshing floor. But you go back and you look at everything else that's happened in Ruth, the idea that Ruth would be engaging in anything immoral is so far outside the boundary of this book that you shouldn't even consider it. Boaz is the same way. Boaz has been presented as a righteous man the entirety of this book. The idea that he's going to engage in anything immoral is so far outlandish, you shouldn't even consider it. In fact, it scares him to ever-loving death. That is why he's responding this way. He knows what kind of things go on on the threshing floor. He knows what kind of people come to the threshing floor. And he knows that people like to do this and then do this. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, his feet are uncovered, which is telegraphing not good things, and there's a woman laying at his feet, and he panics. Who are you? What do you think you're here to do? This is not good. So he says, who are you? And here's what she says. So she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. We have left the plan. Naomi did not tell Ruth to do this. Naomi told Ruth, go and lay down at his feet and let him tell you what to do. Ruth says, nope. I understand the plan, I understand the man, and I understand where this is going. So she tells him exactly what the plan is. I'm Ruth, I'm your maidservant, you are qualified to redeem me, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Take me under your wing. This is in no uncertain terms. This is a proposal. She shows up in the middle of the night and says, Hey, Boaz, it's Ruth. Marry me. That's about the way it happened. 
And she's also used a few key words. She said, take your maidservant under your wing. Compare this back to verse 12 of chapter 2. This is what Boaz blessed her with. The Lord repay you for your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. In other words, Ruth, God bless you for wanting to be included in his covenant, and I'm praying for God to bless you with a full reward as an Israelite woman. Ruth says, all right, put up or shut up. <laughs> put your money where your mouth is, Boaz. This is what you've been praying for. You are qualified to, to fulfill this. You've prayed this for me. You can be God's fulfillment here. I'm asking you to do it. Next, for you are a close relative. Ruth is calling on Boaz uh, to fulfill Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. She is operating towards Boaz the way an Israelite widow would operate toward the nearest of kin to fulfill his duty. She uses these words, and immediately Boaz knows exactly what she's asking for. She's not asking for anything immoral. She's not asking for anything illegal. She's not asking for anything ungodly. In fact, much the opposite. She is operating the way a righteous Israelite woman would operate. That my husband has died, his, his family's name must be carried on under the covenant. You are qualified to do it. So take me under your wing. Marry me and continue my husband's family name because that is our covenant obligations under God. That's what he's instructed us to do. Very righteous, very above board, and very impressive for someone who's only been an Israelite for about six months. Boaz's reaction, verse 10. The uh, layman's terms... Uh, for this translation would be hot diggity dog. Verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. What kindness? What is he talking about? Here's another, here's another quote from our, our Ruth scholar. Although the men of integrity in Bethlehem would have hesitated to overstep the rights of the near relative who sought the widow Ruth's hand in marriage, so they would know that Boaz is a close relative, so they would not have moved in. Uh, Boaz's comment, um, which is following the, at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich, suggests that Ruth was actually a free agent. She was not bound under the law to go to Boaz. Well, how does that work? Is Boaz her deceased husband's brother? No. The law does not specifically apply to him. Now, the spirit of the law, yes, he could have done it, but he was not required by the letter of the law to do it. And Ruth was not required by the letter of the law to go to him. Might have been one reason Naomi felt comfortable releasing them to go back to their family's household was that the letter of the law did not specifically apply to them. But Boaz says, Ruth, you could have gone anywhere. You could have gone after anybody. You could have gone after men closer to your age. Remember, he's probably significantly older than her. You could have gone after anybody you wanted. You could have gone after young men, older men, rich men, poor men. You could have gone after Moabite men. But instead, you chose to be faithful to the covenant to your mother-in-law, to the God of Israel, you chose to operate the way he said to operate. 
Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, because you have been faithful. You chose to come to me, not just because it's me, but because of your faithfulness to the covenant, because of your faithfulness to your mother-in-law, that you have shown great faithfulness. This was about preserving her family. This was about her keeping the covenant. And he says in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. That must have been music to Ruth's ears. She probably had to be terrified through this whole process. What would have happened if Boaz had said no? Could you imagine if Boaz had stood up at midnight, started screaming, Ruth, you Moabite, what are you doing here in the middle of the night? You show up here, you uncover my feet. This is, you're not my wife. This is humiliating. Are you trying to embarrass me in front of everyone? Everybody, look at what Ruth did. See how inappropriate this is? She would have gone back humiliated. Her entire reputation would have been trashed. She would have had no prospect of marrying anybody because Boaz could have painted her as an as a, uh, uh, entrepreneur. Nobody would have wanted to marry her. She would have been shamed. Naomi would have been shamed. Their family line would have ended. Boaz would have no longer wanted anything to do with her. There goes gleaning in the field. You get what's required by law and nothing else. It would have been over. And yet Boaz's blessing says, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now that's a neat phrase. Do you remember earlier on in this book? You may not. I'll go back there. Chapter 2, verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. If you read this in the original Hebrew, um, this could actually mean um, a man of nobility. A mighty, valiant uh, warrior. Do you know that Boaz uses the exact same words that were used to describe him in chapter 2 to describe the kind of woman Ruth is in this verse? Do you know where else these words are used to describe a woman? In Proverbs 31. For some of you who have ever read that, you, go, go read Proverbs 31. This is what Scripture calls a wise, righteous woman. That Boaz says, everybody in this town knows that that's the kind of woman you are, Ruth. I have no problem accepting this request. Um, and you've proved it by the way that you operated tonight. Boaz received her joyfully. He received her joyfully. But problem is there's a wrinkle in the plan. Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative, however there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he doesn't want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. He's in there now. He swore an oath in the name of Yahweh. That's the exact name that Ruth swore an oath in, in the first chapter of this book. See? Don't, isn't this just like the perfect couple? They're both swearing by God's name. They're both using the same words to describe each other. He swears 
in the name of the Lord and says, I will do it for you as the Lord lives. Now you lay down and you rest until morning. See, the analogy between Boaz and Jesus breaks down here because Boaz had to say, wait, there's one closer to you that could redeem you before I could. Y'all, ain't nobody other than Jesus. There's, there's not an alternate way. There's not anybody else that Jesus had to get out of the way and say, hey, all of you, I want to redeem you, but there's a better option. No, Jesus is the only option. Which might make some of you think, well, okay, so you're telling me to come to Jesus boldly. Even some of you as Christians, I guarantee you, you'll say this. Have you ever been scared to just lay yourself bare before God to just be totally and completely honest in front of Him? Even you, you, you can open your Bible. You can know that He loves you. He's for you. He wants to take care of you. But you can still be scared sometimes to go, oh my gosh, this is a holy, righteous God. How am I supposed to go in front of Him and, and, and be up front with Him? I'll tell you how. Know that He's going to receive you. The same way that Boaz received Ruth. Listen to Jesus in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will by no means cast out. You never have to worry about Jesus turning you away when you go to him. You never have to worry about that. That's not an option. That's not on the table. Jesus promised he's never going to do it. So if you're sitting there today saying, I, I, don't, I don't know what God's going to do if I come to him. What if he doesn't want me? What if I've gone too far? What if I've done too much? What if I've screwed up too bad? He is not going to turn you away. He said as much. Stop using that as an excuse. Come to Jesus. I'm going to imitate Whitfield. Come to Jesus. I'm not out of ideas. That is the idea. Come to Jesus. He will by no means cast you out. Boaz didn't cast out Ruth. Jesus isn't going to cast you out. So Christ our Redeemer expects us to come to Him in faith. Christ our Redeemer receives us when we come to Him in faith. And then finally, in closing, Christ our Redeemer rewards us for coming to Him in faith. Look at verse 14. So she laid His feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. That just means it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. <clears throat> also, uh, he said, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. When she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley. Some of you might see measures. If you see ephahs, it's probably in italics. Measures is probably the better option because if it's ephahs, she would have been carrying a whole lot just kind of in, you know, her cloak. Um, probably not what's going on. They filled in ephahs there because that was just, that's the measure that this translation team thought would have been the correct one, but it, it's speculation. It just means he took six measures of something, put it in her cloak, and said, go home. Um, and then uh, when she held it, it measured six ephahs, same reasoning, of barley, and laid it on her, and then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Um, Naomi is not asking, who is this? Um, Hebrew language is kind of vague, but the gist of the question is, how'd it go? <laughs> you tell, tell me what happened. <laughs> you know, did, you, you're obviously coming back with something, so it didn't go horribly. And Ruth tells her all that the man had done for her. In verse 17, she says, And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, and he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, this is interesting. Why did Boaz choose to do this? Why did Boaz say, 
I've got to give you this barley to go home for your mother-in-law. Last quote from our scholar. Boaz may have sent this gift to Naomi as a sign of good faith, his determination to carry through with the promise to try and gain the right to Ruth, and if he could not, to see that the primary kinsman redeemer would marry her. In fact, since Ruth was le- was, Naomi was Ruth's legal guardian, he may even have intended the grain as a down payment of the bride price paid at the time of betrothal. Boaz is basically it. In ancient Hebrew terms, Boaz put a ring on it. That's what he just did. He said, I am in this legally, that I have begun the process, and as soon as this other guy steps out of the way, I ain't got nothing in between me and marrying this woman. I have already given you a show of good faith. I am dead serious. I'm going to do this. This is not just words. And, this, and, and, and that seems to be the way Naomi took it. Because she says, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Uh, Naomi said, sit tight, honey baby darling child. Your job is over. He is now going to take care of it. You just need to sit back and watch. Y'all probably figure out where I'm going with this. But if Boaz is our picture of Jesus... Jesus has given every single Christian a guarantee that he's going to make good on his promises. You know that? That if you have placed your faith in Christ, he has given you, and, and I put the, they're in, they're in the wrong order on the handout. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That when you got saved and you came to Christ, God gave you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that he's going to fulfill every single promise he made you in Jesus Christ. That is proof that he is going to redeem not just your soul, but also your body. You're going to have a new body one day if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You're going to live on a new earth one day if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's proof of that is that he has given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. That that's Jesus' way of letting you know, I'm not just talking. This is real. This is true. And then finally, I wanted to add this there because some folks... I've I've talked to before have told me, well, Josh, it seems really selfish to say, I'm going to God because I want him to reward me. And that's what I call fakey righteous. The reason I call it fakey righteousness is because it sounds all good until you actually read the Bible. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and what? And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God expects you to believe he's going to reward you for seeking him. John Piper puts it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Think of what it must have meant to Boaz for Ruth to come to him and say, You know what, Boaz? I was a free agent. I could have chased anybody. I could have gone after young men, old men, rich men, poor men, Moabite men, Israelite men, Marlboro-like men, Bud-like men, whoever. I could have gone after whoever I wanted. But I came after you. Do you think that didn't bless Boaz? That out of all the places you could have gone... You came to him. Now, these other men couldn't have redeemed her, but she could have gone to him. Do you know that you've got a ton of options that you can go to other than Jesus? 
You, you can go to the bottle, you can go to the money, you can go to, you can go to men, you can go to women, you can go to your job, you can go to your reputation, you can go to your clout in the community, you can go to power, you can go any number of places. They can't redeem you, but you can go to them. But when you go to God, what it says to him is, Jesus, what I believe and the reason I'm coming to you is that I believe what you have to offer is better than what anybody else can. That's why I'm choosing you. You think that doesn't bless God? In fact, that's exactly what Hebrews says. You've got to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You get, do you believe Jesus is worth it? If you're in here today and you don't know him, I'll go ahead and tell you. Jesus is worth it. And if you want to keep chasing other things, go ahead and do that. How's that working for you? How's it working for you? Tell me that you haven't devoted your life to something else other than Jesus Christ that has not let you down more than it has made you feel good. It ain't let me down. Keep living. You're only 28. How do you know? I'm 28, but this book's a few thousand. And it ain't been wrong yet. Come to Jesus. Stop giving excuses. Stop running away. Stop hiding. Stop convincing yourself that he doesn't want anything to do with you. Stop convincing yourself he's going to turn you away and do just like Ruth. Lay off the garments of your old life. Lay off the garments of your mourning over your, your, own, uh, your own sin, your own unrighteousness. Yes, it's true, but you have a redeemer who is qualified, willing, able, and joyously willing to redeem you. Go to him. Stop making excuses and come to Jesus. I'm going to pray. Preston's going to come up here and lead us in a couple verses. If God's doing business with you, come talk to me. We'll set up a time to, to get together. I, I want to share the gospel with you more than in the five or ten seconds that we'll have if you come up here. I'll be glad to tell you about Jesus. I would love to see you come to saving faith in him. Um, if you just need to pray, you can pray in your seat. You can, you can come up here and pray if you'd like to. Uh, you got a guest card on the side of your bulletin. If you want to talk to me, you can fill that out, and I'll follow up with you. Catch me at the back door. Don't leave here without coming to know Jesus, if you don't. I'm going to pray. Preston's going to sing. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for another day with your people. Thank you so much for a Redeemer um, in Jesus. Um, thank you for being willing to accept us and being willing to show us the grace of accepting us, um, not because we've made our lives better, because we can't do that, but giving us grace that you accept us and forgive our sin because of the work Jesus has done on the cross. We love you. We thank you for your willingness. If there's somebody in here who doesn't know you. Father, I pray that you would save them and draw them to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.